Hello and welcome back to Fully Booked, the Hidden Gems author podcast in which Craig Dutch and myself, Roland Hume, chat some of the interesting figures and leading lights of this crazy industry we're in of writing and self-publishing. And today we have a very special guest who we are extremely excited to talk to. It is Tyler Snur, who is a teen and young adult fantasy author, but most remarkably, his first book he wrote and published at the age of just 17. So Tyler, we are delighted to have you on the podcast today. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm sorry for my cat's tail disappearing in and no out worries. of the video feed. Um, we are, of course, we wouldn't be here either without the man himself, Craig Touch, the owner and founder of Hidden Gems. How are you doing today, Craig? Doing great. Thank you, Roland. And thanks for joining us, Tyler. Uh, yeah, you know, you published your first book at 17 um, and, you know, contemporary fantasy, right? And, um, you know, that is something to talk about for sure and we can you know we can briefly uh go over that but really the reason why you're here is that um we are talking about something that roland and i have mentioned i guess a number of times in the last hundred episodes or so that we've recorded here um but we've never really like spent a lot of time like a whole episode about it uh it's the idea that how it's it's about how critical that first hook is in your book the first chapter the first page all the stuff that people can see when they look at the look inside or if they're picking the book up in the bookstore and just flipping through and and reading the first bit you know that is such a critical hook and a lot of authors don't pay enough attention to that you know they feel like well you know people will get into it i gotta build the all these things and the scenes and everything and then the adventure starts later or, and they don't mind if it, you know they think it's fine if, if the first part is isn't sort of grabbing the reader right and that might be true if you already have a really big audience that follows you after you've written many books um maybe they'll always give you that chance but if you're especially if you're new or if you're, if you're somebody who has is still building your your audience i think it's so super critical to have something that is really really going to grab the, the reader and this is a topic that um i know that you that you talk about a lot um and so it's great that you know we're going to be able to pick your brain on that so first of all let's hear a little bit about yourself and how you got started at such a young age and and then you know we'll go from there Absolutely. Um, so I'm Tyler Snur. I'm a, a young adult and teen fantasy author. My first book, The Jewels of Fate, um, came out when I was 17. I published it when I was 17, and it actually was a five-year project. So um, it started, you know, way in my early teens, and then um, finally was released, you know, just as I was on my way out of high school. Um, and The Sword of Sorrenth is the second book in the series. So it is a trilogy, um, two books so far. I'm currently working on my third. And the sort of Sorrent launched uh, last August. That's, That's awesome. amazing. So you started the book when you were thirteen. Yes, yes, roughly. Roughly, I hope roughly because my maths isn't that good. I was like twelve, thirteen, but <laughs> yeah, I mean that's pretty incredible. I, I think I was writing at that age, but not novels. You know, like little short stories and things that I probably never finished. Uh, but it's awesome that you were able to stick with it and take it all the way through, um, even if it took a, a bunch of years. I mean, lots of people take years to write a book, and they didn't start at 13. Absolutely. Um, there are some authors who didn't even get published until their 70s, 80s. Yeah, yeah. 
And hopefully it didn't take them all those years to write it. But. Uh, so what sort of motivated you to, to sort of want to get writing at that age? Uh, definitely my love of reading. That was one of the huge factors. Uh, so I've been a reader as long as I can remember. I have two massive bookshelves in my room that are just overflowing. There's no space for them. Um, yeah, I love same genre. Like I grew up with series like Harry Potter and Percy Jackson and the Hunger Games and Divergent and all those big um, teen, young adult kind of sci-fi fantasy. Um, that's what I grew up with. And um, I still love all those stories today. And, and eventually it got to the point where I was kind of thinking to myself, I want to I want to try writing one of these stories, you know, and kind of telling telling this tale. Absolutely. That's the kind of stuff I was reading, too, where I mean, I guess that stuff came out later for me. I was reading, you know, more pure fantasy stuff back in at, you know, at your age. But later in life, I read all that stuff. Even right now, I'm reading, you know, the the prequel to The Hunger Games because I know the movie just mm-hmm. came out and I'm uh, trying to catch up. I like to read the book first, uh, you know. But, um, okay, so what sort of got you to the idea of how critical this first stuff is and, and, you know, tell us about it. You told me that you run like a masterclass or, or something on, on this topic, mm-hmm. right? So oh, how did that... oh. before we go in, we should maybe talk about the first line of the jewels of fate, which is I nearly witnessed the end of the world, which is a cracker. I mean, like yeah. did, when did you start off when you were writing this with that line or did that line come in later? It came in way later. So the reason I'm so passionate about talking about the start of the story is because in the Jewels of Fate, I think I rewrote it about five different times. So that first line, I nearly witnessed the end of the world. I think that got added in one of the final drafts before it went into print. Um, So it was definitely reworking it over and over and over again. And and then, sorry, I mean, I'll carry on with Craig's question. I was just, I just wanted to put that line in because it was a cracker. Well, well, I think that that's like a critical uh, thing for people to understand, right? You don't have to be like, you know, come up with that 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 first line before you even start writing. You know, that can come in the in the editing phase and and mm-hmm. the, you know, the fifth version of the editing phase, like, and it often has to, right? Because you you haven't written the book yet, but then you realize like something that you can put in to foreshadow or whatever right you know different books are going to have different hooks but that is a really really good way to do it um to you know come back later and be like okay now that i've written the story i know exactly how everything goes i can come back to the beginning and really spruce that up mm-hmm. absolutely so what made you realize how important that was and then take you into that sort of uh you know where you're actually teaching a master class on this topic well, partly uh, just how long it took me to write my first book and, and you know, reworking those first few chapters over and over and over again really showed me the importance of getting it right. And I knew I didn't want to to publish until I was confident in, not um, well, the whole book as a whole, but especially the beginning so that I can, you know, hook in those readers and, and keep them there throughout the whole book. And also thinking of, you know, when I'm reading, what is my reaction to the beginning, the middle, the end of certain books. Like, like, why do I, you know, stick with an author who I might have never read before? Or why do I stop reading a certain author, you know, after six books, but then the seventh one, you know, just didn't, just didn't sit well with me. Like, like, why, what is that feeling? Like, what is that process like for me as a reader? 
that's a really good way of looking at it because i mean to be successful in self-publishing you can't just have one book you have to have multiple books and you want absolutely hook someone in with one book but you want them to keep reading all your books and you're right if you have a dud then it can just kill kill off all of those Mm follow-throughs right so okay so what do you sort of what do you suggest to people to sort of figure this out so when talking about the start of your novel, um, I address something called the reader's roadmap. Um, and this is kind of like putting yourself in the shoes of the reader. Uh, so I've discovered that when you decide that you're going to buy a new book, and this is assuming that you don't know what book you're going to get, there are eight steps between you making that decision and you purchasing that book. And if any of those eight steps are a dud, Uh, then you are way more likely to not end up purchasing the book. And obviously that's not what an author wants. So the first step is um, the store. So whether you shop online or you shop at a brick and mortar store, you generally have um, a store that you go to to purchase books. And then the next section is the genre. Like for me, I won't, I usually don't buy romance books. In fact, I don't think I've ever bought, you know, romance books because it's not the genre I like to read. So immediately I know if I want to buy a book, it's probably going to be in the sci-fi fantasy category. And then the next step is the cover. So now you're in that section of the store or on Amazon. What does the cover look like? How is it attracting your eye? And then if you like the cover, then you flip the book over and you read the synopsis. So that's the fourth step. And if you like the synopsis, then you might open the book and read the first line. That's step five. And then step six is the first page. Step seven is the first chapter. And then step eight is finally making a decision to, to buy the book or not. That's it. I have to admit for a young author with your first book, that shows an awful lot of, uh, that's a really astute way of looking at it. I mean, most of us, I, do, I wrote 11 books before I had my first bestseller, before I first really started thinking about like, oh, well, what's going to make people buy these books before then I've just been writing the book. It seems like a, a really intelligent and smart approach to that. What inspired that? When did you start thinking about being a writer in such a, uh, in terms of like the commercialization of it? Uh, well, after I published my first book, I really started doing research into marketing and and the realization that like if I don't kind of you know tell people about it and work on getting the book out there, it's not going to get read. So then I started thinking about, well, what do other people look for in books, and how can I tweak my own novel to you know meet their expectations and you know get them excited about reading my book? And that's when I realized this kind of eight-step process from you know the decision to buy a new book to here's my money at the cashier, take the book home and read it. But you had written that you didn't go back and, and change the first line after you published that book. Right? No, no, no. Okay. So you had done that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how did you find your sales were? Um, sales were a lot better when the second book came out. Um, just because when I did my second, well, actually COVID had a lot to do with it because COVID kind of canceled my first book launch uh, back in 2020. So really, when I did my first real book launch, which was for the Sword of Sorinth, then more people were like, oh, I really want to read the second book. But since it's a series, I should go back and read The Jewels of Fate first and then read The Sword of Sorinth. So it you know, naturally boosted my sales in comparison to the first book. Um, but then it's like the first book kind of took off a little bit where I was selling 
probably about three times more the first book than the second book. That's really interesting. That that kind of mirrors my, uh, uh, I think not just my experience, a lot of authors experience, like they publish the first book. It doesn't have the impact that they want. They publish a second, third. For me, it was the second book in the series. And then from when, whatever point on, I published a new book in that series, I would sell a lot of copies of that book, but also an equal number of the first book in the series because people mm-hmm. wanted to start from the beginning. So are there different ways that, um, that you can sort of make that first line or first paragraph or first chapter really, really engaging? Um, you know, what you've done is sort of like a foreshadowing. So I guess that's one way to do it, right? Um, and I know from some of my books, um, you know, one of the things that that I did was, you know, if I couldn't start the story off in a sort of like in a way that was going to hook people, um, or if it didn't naturally start there, then I would, you know, do some kind of like flashbacky thing, you know, where it was like, um, it starts off with this thing that happened before. And then just because that's more exciting, and then it jumps forward, you know, a little bit, right. So that's sort of maybe another technique. But let, let's see, uh, you know, there must be some other ones that you know of that, you know, because not everything is going to work for every author, for every book type, mm-hmm. genre. So there, you know, we probably want to go through some ideas that, that authors can use. So I do also use flashbacks, but not necessarily in the beginning of the novel. Um, in The Jewels of Fate, there are, their flashbacks start probably around the midpoint of the book, um, you know, for various reason, reasons related to the plot. Um, but in the beginning, the technique that I use is something called the pre-problem. So the pre-problem is when is an issue that's still relevant, uh, but it becomes irrelevant as soon um, as you know the real plot kicks off. So it's a way to introduce the characters and get readers to relate to the characters. But as soon as um, the inciting incident takes place, the pre-problem becomes completely irrelevant. So in The Jewels of Fate, the pre-problem is um, Chuck's relationship with his parents. You know, it's a dysfunctional family. His parents are millionaires who don't give him the time of day. He's kind of off on his own. And yet they have this whole, you know, life plan for him. And he's trying to fight against that. As soon as, you know, monsters come into the picture, you know, whether or not you're going to go to the right university kind of becomes irrelevant. And yet Uh, it's a way to hook people in right from the first chapter and push them to, I think the inciting incident is around chapter five or six. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. I like that because it also makes the character very relatable because most kids Mm -hmm. were probably, you know, that would resonate with them. I was thinking Star Wars, you know, Luke's problem at first is he wants to go and pick up power converters with his friends at Toshi Station and join the Academy. And his uncle wants him to work on the farm. And then suddenly like, oh, look, stormtroopers. And none of that matters. But it makes mm-hmm. him very relatable because you, you can relate to him as a farm boy. And I guess a, mo- a lot of Americans could probably relate to, to you know, having parents who, who are busy working all the time. Don't give them the time of day. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And um, yeah, so where did that as a as a character, like where did that come in? Did your parents read uh, The Jewel of Fate and be like, we're not like this. What are you doing, Tyler? Are these us? Um, no, it's funny because they sometimes my parents like to pick out. Um, characters from the book and say, oh, this character sounds, you know, a lot like this person in real life. Um, They kind of compare me to the main character, Chuck, which I really don't see, but that's what they think. 
Um, but no, no, they're they're not like Chuck's parents. Yeah. And, um, so you mentioned that you re-edited this book five times before you even published it as a teenager. Now that's, I mean, I look back, I actually have, my parents gave it to me, a book that I wrote in seven, when I was 17, and it's practically unreadable. I was like flicking through it going, what is this crap? And then again, that shows an awful lot of like self-awareness to be like, I have to revise this. I have to revise this again. I have to revise this again, especially as a teenager. What inspired that? Um, just the desire that I want this to be published someday and I want it to you know, stand with all of the other books that are on Amazon um, or even, you know, traditional, traditionally published books that are sitting on, you know, a bookshelf in chapters. Um, and, you know, I, I had those moments too, where I was reading it and um, reading it. And I'm like, no one's going to want to read this. Like this is, you know, crap. Like it needs so much more work, um, you know, but eventually like the more you work on it, the more it gets to the point where, um, I realized, okay, I, you know, I think it's ready for someone other than my mom to read it now. <laughs> did you end up giving it to like beta readers or did you just sort of bite the bullet and <laughs> send it out there? Um, uh, the first book I didn't do beta readers, um, just because of my timeline. I was actually at the time in a kind of an entrepreneurship program where, um, the government was giving you a grant to start your own business. And my business was publishing a novel. Um, but in order to qualify for that grant, I had to get the book out by the end of the summer. So just for like, you know, financial reasons and all of that, it just wasn't feasible to have beta readers at that point. Hmm. That's pretty cool. Now that's an interesting thing as well. So, so that's why you decided to take the route of independent publishing. Because if you look up your book on on the product page, it's like the publisher is Tyler Snow and Laurie Snow, which mm-hmm. I think you know the, a lot of people do it independently or through through Amazon. Uh, this all seems like there was another. There were, you had an agenda right from the get go. You were starting your own business, which mm-hmm. is kind of interesting because I guess that means you had right from the get go. This is a product that I'm putting out to people, and therefore I wanted to be successful. And that's that's a slightly more pragmatic approach. And I think a lot of self-published authors take a lot of self-published authors. are I want to write this book. And then they're like, OK, now I can get people to buy it. It seems like you approach it from the other way. And it's like, I need to make a product that people will buy. Mm-hmm. So, so what inspired that whole approach? What inspired the idea of starting your own publishing company to do it? Uh, well, I, I was in high school at the time and my entrepreneurship teacher told me I should enter this program. And. At the time, I didn't connect the dots that being a self-published author also made you an entrepreneur and a business owner um, until I applied for um, one of the eight positions in this program. And they were like, yeah, you know, we'd love to help you, you know, with your book. Like, that's a great product. I'm like, I didn't realize that a book was a product. I always thought a book, you know, was just a book. Um, And then obviously with that program came a lot of, you know, business related training and they kind of teach you to see your product, no matter what it is, no matter what industry it's in, um, like as a way, like as a way to market it. That's real. God, isn't it cool that you learn entrepreneurship at school? Like I, I learned like stupid stuff like the, the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell and stuff like that. And you're actually learning like practical things and how you can mm-hmm. how you can approach those. So what did, when you discussed like starting your own publishing company, having a product and putting out there, what guidance did people give you about how to get started with that? 
Um, the biggest uh, help I needed with was, you know, the legal stuff. Like, how do you legally register a company, you know, with your local government? So I'm in Canada, um, province of Ontario. So how do I register a publishing company with the province of Ontario? Um, and it was surprisingly easy and surprisingly cheap to do so. Um, yeah, my business license didn't cost me much at all. Um, and yeah, that was it. That's all it took to make it a verifiable company in the eyes of the government. Awesome. So why don't you do a little caption up there or go Tyler Snow, cheap and easy. <laughs> it's, I mean, I'm in Ontario as well. And I, I think I have heard of that program, but I never really uh, looked into it. Um, so it's good to hear that that is something that, you know, people um, are taking advantage of and like young people like you, that's, that's awesome. And taking um, it back, oh, no, go on. Yeah. Well, I was going to say taking it back to topic um, when you're selling a product uh, on, I mean, I don't know if we can talk about advertising and marketing in a bit, but when you land on your product page on Amazon, it's like a journey that you're leading whoever arrived there on of like, oh, the cover is appropriate and your cover like looks like it, it deserves to belong along young adult things there's the blurb then um there are the reviews and things but one of the things that i think is very underrated in terms of turning traffic into customers is the look inside where people read the first sections of a book and i know this because in my first book in my series uh i was advertising it i had figured out my conversion rate and then i rewrote the first chapter to make it much more compelling and had a really uh, like a, a really scandalous first page. And it doubled the number of people who landed on my product page and actually bought my book. So I think that first page is so important. When did you become aware of that uh, as like a, a major thing to, to, to focus on? Um, definitely not, not till the end, which, um, you know, my advice for, for new authors is, is focused on it in the beginning. Um, make sure that you understand the importance of the first page and the first chapter in the beginning, because I didn't realize it um, until the end. And so um, my mom was the first person to to read the book before it was published. And um, she was making these notes and saying, like, oh, this doesn't make any sense. You know, this is unclear. This doesn't sound right. And, you know, as an author, you know, creating a book, you know, it's like your baby, right? Like you don't want anyone talking bad about it. So I, I was like, like, what do you mean it's unclear? Like, what do you mean it doesn't make any sense? And, you know, at first I was very resistant to changing it and updating it because I just, you know, I thought it was good. I thought it was ready and I wanted it out there. Um, but I needed the reminder that um, if you're not, maybe not 100% confident because you can fall into the trap of over revising and then never getting it published. But you, I'd say you want to be at least 85% confident in the book when it, you know, gets published and, um, and, you know, I, I wasn't there yet. The more, you know, I looked at it and the more I realized, oh, you know, she's right. You know, this line doesn't make sense. You know, this paragraph doesn't make sense. Um, and it was right in the beginning too, like right there on the first page. Um, and that's what can make or break a book. If like a lot of readers put down the book within the first page and it's an unfortunate thing, but it's true. That's very true. I just wrote yeah. a blog post about Frida McFadden and her book. She was a self-published author. Her first book, um, The Housemaid, it has a killer first line. It's like, if I leave this house, it's going to be in handcuffs. Uh, and that, and she went viral on BookTok. But it's like that first line was one of the reasons why, you know, people would see the blurb and it was a great blurb. They'd open that, read that first line and it was like, boom, hooked. 
So again, that shows a lot of self-awareness. And I think, Craig, when you and I work with other authors, sometimes we give authors very um, pragmatic advice about things they need to change their book if they want it to be commercially successful. And we do experience like resistance from, from people because I understand, as you said, Tyler, it's like your book is your baby and you don't want to necessarily like shake the baby. But sometimes you do need to shake the baby to, to, to actually make it something that people want to buy. And that shows so much self-awareness from a, from a young author, whereas a lot of us, me included, it took us a long time and a few hard knocks to finally get reality into us. Yeah, you know, and I think that your mother is a lot more honest than mine would be. Like, I think no matter what my book was, she would never tell me that there were any issues. She'd probably say, oh, this is wonderful. It's perfect. You know, <laughs> I could never trust what she would say. Not that I would let her read any of my romance stuff. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I, like you said, books are a product, and that is something that we often have to sort of drill into author's heads like that you're like you said running a business you're running a business you're self-publishing you're doing everything even if you're not physically doing everything you might hire people to to create your cover or to do this or to do that but you're the one who has to hire them you're the one who has to realize that you can't do it yourself and so you have to go and you have to find a cover artist you have to you know check what else they've done make sure they're good for you you have to pay them you have to do all those things you have to handle marketing you have to understand all those facets and um the book like you said is a product it is your product and when you only have the first book then it's your only product you need to make sure people want to read it and the cover as as we've always said is one of those first things that will bring people to it you know you always hear don't judge a book by its cover but people absolutely do mm -hmm. absolutely right i mean you're sure. if you're walking in a in a bookstore and looking at rows and rows of books what are you going to pick up you're going to pick up the one that catches your eye and it's the same thing with on amazon you see all the your pages of covers and the top lists and the, whatever, wherever you're browsing and you see the cover, that's the first thing you see. Unless you recognize the name of the author and you know you have to be a big name to be recognizable, that's the first thing you see. So you click on that and then you read the blurb and that's sort of the second thing you see. But the next thing you're gonna do is you're gonna open that up and you're gonna say, okay, you know, cause not every book is sort of your kind of reading you know your your writing style that you like to read right so it, so you'll open it up and if that first thing does not capture your i'd say you have maybe more than a first line and if your first line can hook like you know for it is and yours uh that's even better but you have maybe a paragraph or two but if it's dry and boring i don't think pe most people are going to get past that right like because why why should they they can just go on to the next one so um, and then like to go back then, so we talked about, you know, foreshadowing and pre-problems and flashbacks. Do you have any other sort of ways that, that we can hook, hook readers at that first part? Um, I know, uh, from a reading perspective, I love books that start in the middle of a scene. Um, and in what I talk about, you know, whether I'm doing school visits or teaching a master class, it always seems to come up is, is never start um, a book or a chapter or especially a book with exposition, you know, like this long background, um, kind of like uh, you mentioned Star Wars earlier, kind of like at the beginning of Star Wars when all the text scrolls by and it's giving context to what the movie is going to be about. 
Um, it might work in a Star Wars movie, but probably not, you know, in, in a book, especially the first chapter. So I like, you know, to get right into the meat of things. Maybe not a specific action scene, but, you know, something is happening. Like, it's not just, you know, once upon a time, there was this character and, you know, this is what this character's childhood was like. And then three pages later, okay, this is where the character is now. This is where the story will start kind of thing. You do that very succinctly. It's like the the first paragraph of your first page, uh, there are like five five different paragraphs and they put everything about Chuck's situation in it. And then you just throw it straight into him in the kitchen with Gail, which I think is is great. Because mm-hmm. you're right, when I, uh, I think in 1977, maybe, you know, people had lesser expectations and the scrolling thing in Star Wars was new and innovative. But now if I watch a Marvel movie like The the Eternals and it starts off with 3,000 years ago, the sword yeah. of Diogenes yeah. was created by the nine gods of whatever. And it's like boring. I don't want this. I want something. I want to jump straight into the action. Yeah. Um, so in terms of killer first lines, what are some of the fav- favorite first lines you have from books that inspired you? Uh, I think it's a good question for everyone. I mean, I like James Bond. So the first line of Casino Royale is the smoke and scent of a casino at 3 a.m. in the morning is nauseating. Now, that's a that's a great line, more so in the 60s when people had less demands. But what are the first mm-hmm. lines of books that have really inspired you and, and grabbed you and you wanted yours to be as impactful as? Uh, one of my favorites is, um, I have two favorites. The first is the Percy Jackson series. Yeah. Um, I don't remember it word for word, but the lightning thief starts off with, um, I didn't know I was going to be a half blood. I'm pretty sure that's what the line is. Um, and like right away hooked me in, you know, it tells you, you know, you're thinking what's a half blood, like, you know, who is this character? You know, why didn't he know that he was going to be a half blood? Um, and then it just, you know, keeps going from there. And then my second is, uh, the gone series and um, in the gone series the first line in the first book is one minute my teacher was there and the next minute she was gone so it's two lines but the whole point of it is is the whole series is about all the adults suddenly disappear and the kids are left to run this small town in california and it's a lot like lord of the flies but you know updated for you know modern times and it's it's an amazing series and right away like we were just talking about you know getting going right in the middle of the story like the teacher disappears all the adults disappear and in the first page the kids are left with just you know each other right and they're you know they're running things now that is great that's a great concept i think again when you're talking about the pro- your book as a product having a killer concept is really really important um and it's the Percy Jackson. I, a lot of people compare your books to Percy Jackson because I guess there are some similarities. I don't think they're derivative mm. in any way, but, you know, your books are set in New York and Percy Jackson, of course, famously set in New York. Um, yes. How much did you was there emulation there or did you just happen to just dig that kind of thing? Why did you set up? You're from Ontario. Why did you set your book in New York? Um, I love New York, uh, yeah. which is ironic because I've never been there. <laughs> um, yes, I was supposed to go for my grade 12 grad trip. We were supposed to go to New York and then COVID canceled that. Um, uh, so I was super disappointed. Um, so it's, I just did a post about how I use Google maps to help me like describe New York and, you know, and the whole book isn't set in New York. It's only the first few chapters, but obviously I need to know what the city was like. Um, but I think New York is, is fascinating because there's so many people, there's so many different 
suburbs like you've got manhattan you've got chinatown rhode island like there's all these different areas of new york um and i find like when i watch movies like elf elf is set in new york i think the visuals of just how the city looks is just so cool you know with the empire state building and the statue of liberty and all kinds of stuff that's yeah. that's and, where I live. And I, and it's like and your book. Did oh no! Way. Yeah, and you know, it's it's something that I don't know. Maybe I don't know. It's probably not just me, but I feel like as a Canadian, often you know, you're writing for a market that's usually U.S. based because that's the biggest market. And I feel that I don't want to, you know be a person that is not like proud of where they live it's not that but it's like i think that i my books would appeal to readers more if they were set in a big u.s city than be like hey i'm in ontario you know anyone in the u.s pick that up and be like "Ah." i I get that like imagine sex in the city except instead of new york city except in like winnipeg yeah (laughs) it's just not you know so i get it and and I like, you know, the idea of being able to use Google Maps, especially because you can use Street View. You can, like, almost walk down those streets. You can, you, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago where you couldn't really accurately describe a city without having been there. But these days, if you want to, you can talk about a suburb speci- with specifics because you could just Google Map, Street View, and, and just walk down the street and you could refer to different stores that are there and whatever right which you know might date the book but um but i think you know that's made that sort of thing more accessible now too so um one of the lines that i recall from uh from a book that that stuck with me it was uh, you know read it to my kids but lemony snicket you know the the series of unfortunate events and it had started with something like um you know if you're if you're looking for a, a book with a happy ending this is not the story for you or something like that. <laughs> I like that, you know, it's sort of like, because so many books are, you know, you know, they're going to end up all nice and happy and stuff. And and that kind of often ruins um, some of the, the tension, right? Because you know, everything's going to work out in the end. So I, to me, that I like that it started out with that because it's like, okay, so then you never know what's going to happen. Then. Mm-hmm. I love that series. That's a great series. Yeah. It really um, is. That's a series that, that like we got all the books, and, and it was so beautiful because that was a very evocative series. And when they made the movie and the TV shows, it was again it like conjured up this this almost retro futuristic thing of a time that didn't that didn't really exist. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's sort of maybe another technique is like saying something at the beginning that is almost like. Um, it's almost fantastical or, or something that you can't really believe is, is going to happen or, or that really like makes you think, what? <laughs> I've got to read and, and, and know what this is all about. Um, which, you know, in your line, it's sort of like that as well. Um, you got to say at the end of the world, like, you, you know, what? You got to figure that out. It's like, so you can have like a killer hook, but like, so in the, in the, um, in the Frida book, where it's like, well, you take me out in handcuffs. It's not really, it's enticing, right? You want to find out why, but it's not something that sort of like blows your mind. Like you got to, uh, what, how, you know, and like, this isn't going to be a happy ending. What, I got, you know, so you, you want to kind of, uh, 
that's just, I guess, another way to sort of start the book is if if your book sort of right, you know, uh, you, you can't really shoehorn that into in a romance. I guess you're not going to be like talking about the end of the world or or and you certainly yeah. aren't going to not have a happily ever after ending because that's what romance re readers want. Right. So it obviously depends on your genre, but sometimes you really want to twist the expectation of the reader right from the get go, because that really, really makes them want to read, I think. I think that works especially well in YA as well. I was just thinking, uh, uh, you mentioned the first line of uh, The Lightning Thief. And isn't like the second line about if you're reading this book, uh, my advice is close it right now because um, believe all the lies that your mum and dad told you, but the world is a scary place kind of thing. Right. And it follows very closely to to Lemony Snicket. And I, like, I think teens and uh, young adults especially like that because it's, you're reaching that stage in your life where the wonderful rosy vision of the world that your mum and dad have have given you you suddenly see that actually the real world is a big scary place and you know yeah. mum and dad don't have the answer for everything and and you're going to be on your own sooner or later and that's part of what makes books like yours and books like the lightning thief and and star wars and things they all follow joseph campbell's like the hero's journey of throwing you into a big scary unfamiliar world in which you have no mm -hmm. one to rely on apart from yourself exactly so um so Tell us about this masterclass that you teach on this subject. So what is that? Like, where would people like find that? And what is it that the, that you do? Is this an online thing or is this, um, you know, something that you teach in a class setting or what is it? Um, so I teach it online. It's a virtual masterclass, um, roughly 45 minutes to an hour called the chapter one challenge session. And we go into more detail about pretty much everything we've talked about um, on this podcast about how to start a story right, you know, what um, readers are looking for, uh, also what literary agents are looking for as well, if you do want to go traditional. Um, because they, uh, in some cases, literary agents and readers have the same expectations when it comes to reading your novel. Um, but literary agents, it's slightly different because they're thinking about your book from a more marketable standpoint like you know will this make my publishing company money that's how they're thinking about it um so we go into you know how to start a story and we talk about the pre-problem we talk a bit more about those eight steps um the reader's roadmap as i like to call it from the decision to buy a book to leaving the store um or adding it to your shopping cart um yeah, all kinds of stuff related to that. And if you would like to find out more about that, um, I always send out an invitation whenever I'm hosting it to my email. Um, so if uh, if you want to get on my uh, mailing list um, and with a bunch of other freebies and cool offers there too, all that is on my website. Yeah, I was going to ask. So it's not um, it's not a pre-recorded thing, right? It's a it's a live session that you. It's run a live. It's a live because I like to answer questions after too. And a lot of participants sometimes have, you know, clarifying questions or things like that. Um, now, is that part of your publishing business? Is this like, you know, you write books, you publish books. Is this part of that entrepreneurial journey you're on? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. That's what I'm moving towards um, and slowly building up. Yes. Um, and then so how do you get people to um, to know about this class? Like, how do you advertise it? Uh, many different ways. So like I said, I send out uh, more of a formal invitation um, through my email because it has, you know, a sign up link and all of that. So it's easy to kind of access. 
um, and for, you know, participants to sign up. And then that way I can also kind of see from my end who's signing up. Um, but I, I know I talk about it if I'm on, um, if I'm speaking at an event or a conference, um, author visits in schools, podcasts like this, kind of um, any any way I can, you know, meet new people and, and talk to new people, I like to like to address it and talk about it. But how did you get those people onto your list in the first place? I mean, I imagine that they're uh, if they're on there, they probably already took it, or or they're readers of your book, in which case they might not be interested in uh, you know how to write the book. So you know where you know you said so the, for, the formal invitation, but but how do they get on there without having already taken the class? Absolutely. So it's mostly. Most of my email list before, because I've only been running this class, you know, this year in 2023. So prior to that, it was, um, you know, people who bought the book, read the book. Um, I did a lot of local vendor markets in my area. So people kind of, you know, joined my newsletter that way as well. Um, so it's, I'd say maybe 75%, 25%, 75% being they signed up, you know, because of the book and they want to, you know, uh, read the book and then 25% they found me through hey I want to join this master class and then by that way you know joins the newsletter and is there a cost for the class or is it is no, free? free wow that's really great it's how many people wonderful. do you usually get uh, in a session and how often do you run them um, I run them every couple of months or so and it varies between like not not too too many. I'd say I get you know up to you know ten registrations, and that's I mean that's nice because that keeps it kind of intimate. I think when you're teaching yes. a class like that, because everyone comes in with not just themselves but also their seventy thousand word, hundred thousand word book that they want to improve. So that's a lot of stuff coming in. So I think more than ten people, it might get a bit unwieldy. Exactly. Yes. Um. And then, and that, and you said it's about 45 minutes. Do the people um, sort of, do you break it out into sort of uh, breakout sessions or is it just sort of you talking and then have a Q&A at the end? Uh, it's mostly me talking and then I do a Q&A at the end, but I also really like to make my presentations interactive. Um, and this is not just for the master class, but, you know, whenever I'm speaking at a conference or um, whether I'm in a school, especially because, you know, kids, their attention span is not that long at all. Well, adults um, so, are getting the same way. <laughs> so, yeah, I like to make it super interactive. I like to ask questions, kind of get them to talk. Um, I always get them to share about what book they're working on, um, and especially, you know, where where they could use some guidance the most. That's great. And, well, we're actually approaching the top of the hour, but I was going to say this is a, an excellent time to say when people hear this and they become interested in it, where can they find out more? You just said your website. Where is your website? Yes. So my website is um, www.snurstories.com. So like my name, S-N-U-R-E, Snur, and then stories, um, S-T-O-R-I-E-S. Um, you can follow me on uh, all the social medias, Instagram, Facebook, um, YouTube, Twitter, or X now. Um, same handle, Snur Stories. Good branding. There we go. Um and I, th I think that's been fascinating. So, Craig, as we wrap up, do you have any last thoughts or, or, or questions? Um, I will end with this. When talking about, you know, the start of the story, um, I feel like, you know, as both a reader and a writer, um, 
I feel like it's not your job. It's not the author's job to get a reader to like the book. It's the author's job to get the reader not to put the book down. Because there are a lot of times readers can read through the whole book and they might hate the book, never want to read it again, but they might know exactly the next person to give the book to. Like, you will love this. You should read this. Not for me, but here, have it. I hate this book. You'll love it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You'll never get that chance if they don't finish it or if they stop at the first page. Yeah, I mean, there, there's sometimes where, you know, you there's you can tell a book's not for you, but if the story is compelling, you still want to see how it ends, right? <laughs> and and that's, that's a good point. Like, if you can still get them to do that, they might, at the end, be able to say, hey, you know, this this wasn't for me for whatever reason, but it can be for you. And, and uh, so that, you know, that's a good point. You know, listen, thanks for coming on. I think that this is something that um, is so super important, um, and I can understand why you give a class and I think it's awesome that you you're doing it for for all these uh, the classes that you that you speak to the students and stuff um because if you're a beginning writer you really need to understand the whole idea that you are selling a product and to sell a product that product has to be compelling it has to people have to want to buy it you know, and and they're not going to just do it because you wrote it. It's got to have all those things, the you know, the, mm-hmm. the packaging and the and everything. And then when they look inside, they you know they have to be oh yeah, this is something I need. So this is uh, this is a really really great topic. So thank you again for coming on and and bringing it up with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, we will pop the link to your website down below. And if you have enjoyed this podcast and if you have uh, valued what Tyler came to share with us today, make sure you scroll down there and leave him a comment in that comment section. While you're down there, if you haven't already, hit that subscribe button, hit that like button. There is a little bell there that you can click to get notified every time we have a new episode of Fully Booked. And we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. So until then, stay tuned. Thank you very much.